Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I want to announce that I'm very pleased we have had over 100,000 listeners to The Diplomat's podcasts. I want to thank you, dear listeners, very much for your continued support for spreading the word. I think it shows that the community that we're trying to build here of respect, of education, inspiration, and bridge building is beginning to take hold. Please do continue to share the podcast. Please let our community grow. In that light, today I have an interesting guest, Barak Ravid, a journalist, the diplomatic correspondent for Walla in Israel, and the Axios Middle East correspondent. I think it's fair to say that Barak Ravid and I may disagree on many things with respect to Israel, Israeli policies, and so on. However, as you'll see from this interview, we were able to have a great conversation. We agreed on a lot, and it's exactly one of the reasons that I started this podcast. We can show that we can build bridges, we can talk to people who we don't necessarily agree with. Take a listen to this episode with Barack Ravid on The Diplomat. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I'm really pleased to interview Barack Ravid. Barack Ravid is a diplomatic correspondent for Walla in Israel, as well as the Middle East correspondent for Axios. I read his column regularly. Let me start, Barack, by wishing you congratulations on your new book, Trump's Peace. Thank you, Jason. I have to say, I was very busy when the book came out, because as you could imagine, I got calls from the media in Israel and here and throughout the Middle East. What do you think of what Barack Ravid wrote about? There's so many things that you wrote about. Now, I'll confess, because the book's in Hebrew, and while my Hebrew is good, it's not it's more work for me to read it in Hebrew than English, so I'm excited when the English comes out. But I think, certainly think from the amount of press that it got, I saw enough about it. And I, I actually think I deserve a commission because I was uh, definitely I was talking definitely. about it all over the place. Definitely. And, and to sort of summarize so my guests could understand you know, the difference, let's say, between our political viewpoints, uh, I did an interview with Effie Trigger from Galei Sahal, GLZ Radio in Israel. And I said, you know, Barack is an excellent reporter, that Barack and I disagree about many things politically. I actually had to correct him a little bit because he translated my interview into Hebrew, and he said that we disagree. And I said, Effie, you have to say we really disagree. <laughs> but I think what's important is, um, and one of the reasons I started this podcast is because we can disagree and still be friends and still talk. You know, I've known you now since roughly 2016. You... Uh, I'll say, I say this in a funny way. You bothered me since 2016. You had so many <laughs> questions. And I probably irritated you so much because I kept things very close to my chest. I hardly revealed anything. But now so much has happened since we first met. So welcome to the show and thank you for joining. No, thank you for having me. And I got to tell you that uh, among our disagreements, I disagree that we disagree so much. Good, I'm, that, I'm, that's not probably sure, true. I'm not sure that we disagree so much. You know, now that I think about it, it's a fair point. As I think about the coffees we've had and the meetings we've had, um, it's true that you rarely left the room with me thinking, what's wrong with that guy? 
yeah or at least or at least i think that if if i remember you know our first conversation in 2016 i think it was even during the election campaign or right before the elections shortly before the elections and if i think about you know our conversation today i think that our disagreements in a way i don't know shrinked if it's the it's the right word i think so uh, i think we disagree less than we did let's say f- 5 years ago right well you learned a lot since then right <laughs> <laughs> So I want to start with probably the the roughest, hottest topic, which is Iran. And and not so much the Iran deal itself, although we should get into that, but your article yesterday about what's coming out and what will be coming out of the White House and the, the Biden administration. Because I want to hear from your view, both as a journalist, somebody who's Israeli, somebody who's steeped in this file generally, whether you think my view about your article and what you covered in the article, I really should say, is is wrong, or do you agree with it? It's troubling to me how the Biden administration now is laying the blame on Trump. So we can sit here and maybe have 10 podcasts about whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision for President Trump to cancel the Iran deal, to walk away from it. I think it was the right thing to do. But that's not the focus of this first question. The focus of the question is, is you have um, Jen Psaki, the White House spokesperson, saying none of the things we're looking at now would be happening if the former president, no, she doesn't even say President Trump, but that's another story. If the former president had not recklessly pulled out of the nuclear deal and no thoughts about what might come next. And then you also had the State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, who said it's worth spending just a moment on how we got here. It's deeply unfortunate because of an ill-considered or perhaps unconsidered decision by the previous administration. And uh, it goes on to say that the Trump administration promised a better deal that never came close. And instead, Iran was able to gallop forward with its nuclear promise. So I get if they wanted to say, we didn't agree with Trump on canceling the deal. We're in a very rough spot. We can't make a deal that makes sense with Iran. Iran is being difficult. There's lots of things that they could say. But it seems to me they're trying to blame the inability to get a deal. And I don't want to blame the Biden administration. I I blame Iran. But the inability to get a deal done because Trump pulled out of the deal. And with such, um, in my view, manipulative and misleading language to say it was ill-considered, maybe even not considered, Um, no plan of action, because that's not true. I've been in the business for three years in the White House. You've been following this kind of thing for years. It would be very unusual for any administration not to go through these things very carefully. The decision may have been not what they expect, but to say it was ill-considered and no plan, I think is a false attack. How How do you read that? No, so first, you know, let's start with the facts. I... I don't think that it's accurate to say that it was unconsidered because first it happened, I think, almost 18 months into the administration, into the Trump administration. And in the first 18 months, there was a an attempt to try and, and you know, uh, fix the deal that, um, that again, I, I, I thought that, you know, in May 20, in April, 2018, I think they should have given it another three months 
to to try because they were very very close but in any case it wasn't like Trump came into the White House on the first day and said oh I'm pulling out of the Iran deal if that was the case then I think unconsidered would be a good description but it it wasn't the case you know there were numerous uh, uh discussions in the administration and you know even people who served in the administration left the administration because there was a debate their position wasn't uh, accepted and they decided that they didn't want to uh, uh continue in in their job so it's so to say that it was unconsidered i think that it's it's highly inaccurate uh my bigger problem here is that you know it's okay to say to blame the previous administration uh, about the the situation let's say in your first 100 days in office and you know every politician does that in every country uh here in Israel we just had a a new government several months ago in the first few months in office all they did was to blame the the blame Netanyahu for every bad thing uh that happened some of their claims were were right some of their claims were totally bogus but you know that that's that's politics in your first few months in office you you blame your predecessor on every every bad thing that happens but you know Biden is a year in so again to 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 blame now Trump for what is going on now I, you know I think it's highly 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 problematic and and at the end of the day okay so you blame Trump so what what okay how, what what does this solve is, is this getting us anywhere to say that it's Trump's fault okay other than other than you know uh to uh to rally your base which is also irrelevant because there are no elections so it's i just don't understand why this is uh constructive in any way uh instead of again either you know focus on getting the deal if you think that getting a deal is is the right thing to do or prepare for a plan b if you think that you can't get a deal to to focus your energy on attacking uh somebody who is out of office for a year i don't know i i i just think it's it's totally unproductive see we do disagree less than i thought <laughs> <laughs> so let's let me ask you a second question about iran i've long said that america is spending too much time listening to certain members of the european union or or europe generally not enough time spending uh listening to uh Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, our allies and friends in the Middle East. This is under the new administration and I think under the Obama administration. I know that we did as under the Trump administration. Because in my mind, the most important people that need to be listened to is your region. You're the ones in the direct line of fire. Um, Europeans are affected, but in my view, Europeans are much more interested in doing business with Iran, papering this over... uh, kicking the can down the road, and all that. Now, I do know that the Biden administration has certainly said publicly over the last number of months they're listening more to Israel and and other allies and friends in the region, and I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they are because I know it's easy for me to criticize from afar when I'm not in the room, so it's unfair for me to do that. Do you think that the Biden administration is listening enough to those in the Middle East who are directed, directly affected? And how relevant do you think the Europeans are in the scheme of who should be listened to the most? I'm sure that you'll find you know, different variations when you ask these questions, you know, different 
countries in the region or and different people in the same country in the region. But I think that if there's one thing that is factually true is that the Biden administration, I think, learned the lesson from the mistakes of the Obama administration when it comes to uh, how do we handle this the Iranian issue in the region, meaning uh, the Obama administration started talking to the Iranians in secret behind the back of Israel, behind the back of Saudi Arabia, behind the back of the UAE in, you know, end of 2012 and the beginning of 2013 in, in the Sultanate of Oman. And I think that at least, and, and it caused many people, many leaders in the region to feel like uh, the Obama administration stabbed them in the back. Um, you know, the Obama administration said that he did that because, you know, he didn't want uh, uh, the countries in the region to, I don't know, to sabotage the talks, whatever. But in any case, it created, I think, this huge, huge mistrust that went far from just being on, on Iran. It, it just, it, it, I think it harmed the ability to... Um, uh, work together on issues that uh, had nothing to do with the Iranian nuclear deal. That's obvious. Iranian nuclear deal was obviously a very contentious issue, but because of this mistrust on many other issues that that like there was no reason not to work together. Then Israel and the U.S. and the U.S. and Arab countries in the region and the U.S. Arab countries in the region and Israel couldn't work together because there was this huge mistrust because of the feeling that. Uh, the U.S. was working behind the back of Israel and the Arab countries in the region. I think it was a huge mistake, and I think, or the, or I know that the Biden administration learned the lesson, and from very early on, it made every effort to at least keep Israel and countries in the region in the loop. Are they listening, uh, or you know? changing their position according to the um, opinions of the Israeli government or the go other governments in the region? I think that on some issues, yes. On some issues, no. But they're definitely not working behind the back, which is at least, and I heard it from many people, not only in Israel, also in the UAE, in Bahrain, in other countries, in Jordan, in Egypt, that they it's very clear to them that um that at least for now they know that the biden administration is not working behind their backs they they all say you know we don't necessarily agree with what they're doing but they're not cheating us or anything it's not good barack so far we have two things we're not too far apart on so, so let's yeah this this starts to be boring yeah you know we need to fight over something well let's jazz it up let's talk about <laughs> president trump Right. No secret. I'm a fan of President Trump. I've supported him for years. I worked for him for almost a quarter of a century. I don't agree with every one of his tweets when he was on Twitter. Um, I don't agree with everything he says and does. I think there are things he should have done differently. But I think he was a strong leader. I think he accomplished a great deal, certainly in the Middle East as well as elsewhere. Uh, my first question is, you know, how was it sitting down with him? We'll get to the specific quote I want to talk about, but. You spent time with him. How was it sitting down? What was your overall impression of him, his style, and uh, what he accomplished? You know, I I didn't know what to expect because it's really 
A, I've never sat down one-on-one with a, a president of the United States, even the former president of the United States. And, you know, and with Trump, it's even more unexpected. You know, you really don't know how it's going to be. And, and I got to say that um, to his credit, he gives, he creates this, at least in our, you know, engagement, he creates an atmosphere that is at least, um, you know, you don't, there's like, there's no distance. You, you know what I mean? You, you, it's like, you feel like you're talking to, you know, just another person and not, like you know the president of the united states and and i think that it at least to me it created a, a very um let's say good atmosphere for conversation it wasn't like that you know he was trying to be uh he, he wasn't trying to impress me or wasn't trying to bully me or wasn't try he wasn't like or wasn't trying he wasn't even trying to i don't know to uh to um you know to play nice he was just really like a person you meet on the street and you're having a conversation and it's it's like a normal person and this was i think the thing that surprised me the most because i didn't know what to expect and i think that my conclusion at the end of the interview of the two interviews was that um and again i'm saying this as i'm not an american i don't vote in america i don't pay taxes in america you know, I'm interested in American politics, but it's not, I have no, um, you know, I, I'm not a stakeholder, okay? Um, so I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm like this outside uh, person who can, who can really take a look at things and, you know, without an emotional attachment to it. And my conclusion was, that and and by the way, maybe this is why Trump felt that he can be more open because you know I wasn't there to talk to him about January sixth, not because I don't care about January sixth, but because it wasn't the the issue I was writing about. So it was it was really about the things in his legacy that were maybe even more uh, that were you know less controversial. Or, or at least uh, more, uh, the more, let's say, positive part of his legacy that also got, uh, um, you know, bipartisan uh, praise, at least, at least some of it. So, and my conclusion at the end of, of the two interviews was that, you know, and, and I took it also to our politics here in Israel, um, and it affected how I wrote the book, that at the end of the day, politicians, leaders, you know, presidents, prime ministers, they're more complex than, you know, just the headlines they make. You know, at the end of the day, some of them, or all of them, not some of them, all of them do bad things, okay, that people disagree with, or that people are hurt by, or that people will hate and will stay in their legacy as a stain to either everybody or or part of society or whatever and they also do good things and and things that will stay positive in their legacy and that took the world forward or the country forward and i think that it's really important that when we 
you know, try and, and judge uh, a president's or, or a prime minister's legacy, we we address, you know, both the good and the bad, and not and not just, you know, those who uh, uh, admire Trump or admire Netanyahu here in Israel think that everything they did is great, or the people who hate them, everything they did is 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 wrong and bad. No, some things are good, some things are bad, and you know, each of us will make his own decision of, you know, w- what was more bad or good. But it, it, we can't just say that everything this politician did was great or that everything this politician did was bad because this is just an inaccurate description of any politician's legacy. So let's talk then about the specific quote, the F-bomb, right? In your book, you describe how in your conversation with President Trump, he said that he liked B.B., but then Trump said he felt that Bibi congratulated President Biden too early and said, I haven't spoken to him since. F him. I don't fault you for putting it in the book. It obviously was, uh, it, look, it's, it's a slice of what he said. Um, my view on it, first of all, I don't use that language. I teach my kids not to use that language. You know, I don't want to pretend for a second I'm naive in thinking, forget President Trump, but Lots of politicians, including presidents, use that kind of language often in private, not necessarily to a journalist who has a, a wide following in the Middle East and in America, but he used it, right? But to your point from before, I think that it needs to be taken into context of everything that President Trump did with respect to Israel. And it was a political statement. He obviously was annoyed at Prime Minister Netanyahu, former Prime Minister Netanyahu for um, Prime Minister Netanyahu congratulating President Biden. I think Prime Minister Netanyahu did the right thing. I don't see how the leader of the state of Israel couldn't call President Biden uh, to congratulate him. But I think people um, maybe misunderstand that it's one item on a list of many things in the right context that should be paid attention to. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. So first, I agree with you that Obviously, any Israeli prime minister, or by the way, every leader in the world, when there's, there are elections in America and there's a new president, you need to congratulate the new president. If you don't do that, this is highly reckless and irresponsible for your country's own interest. And, and by the way, and it's rude. Okay, so it's like, it's not done not to congratulate the president of the United States, president for a second. I think that uh, at least the way I saw it, um, when he when he used the F word uh, regarding Netanyahu, it was he actually made a case. I mean, it wasn't like he went straight to the F word. It was something like twenty minutes where he built the case on why you know on all of his his the series of grievances. He had about Netanyahu that the congratulating Biden was, you know, maybe the what what broke the camel's back, and and obviously his frustration for, you know, losing the elections had a lot to do with it. But it wasn't only that. Meaning that when he built the case, he said several things. First, I think he was, uh, and 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 again, this is something that. I I knew quite early on in the first year uh, of Trump in office that 
you know, he really wanted to to move forward quite fast on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And um, Netanyahu didn't want to move fast. And I think that they had, uh, you know, a disagreement on this issue. And uh, and I think that um, when, and Trump was frustrated about it, uh, but I don't think it really bothered him until, you know, January 2020 when he presented his plan. And I think that, you know, the plan that, you know, you had a huge part in drafting. And I think that in in his mind and in the mind of also, you know, I guess also Jared Kushner and and I don't know, I think also you, um, you saw this plan as that even if it's something that won't be possible to do right away, that as something that will be, you know, sort of that you wanted to, you know, anchor down and, you know, mobilize international support in order to to make it some sort of a work plan for a possible second term. That So that if there's a second term, there's already a plan on the table. And then the Palestinians know that they have Trump for another four years. So maybe they'll go back to the table and then you already have something to start working with. You, you're not going to, you, you won't need to start, you know, everything all over again. And so I think that was the thought when when the, the plan was presented. And, and, you know, it was also like a few months before the election. So it was, you know, with with the eye on a possible second term. And I think that Trump interpreted what Netanyahu did that day, especially with his announcement that he will, you know, start annexing parts of the West Bank on on Sunday, like five days after the ceremony. I think Trump saw it as a sort of a, you know, I'm here to present a peace plan. And for Netanyahu, he just cares about this one part uh, of the plan, he's tries he's trying to cherry pick from 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 the plan in order just to do this. Uh, and this is something I heard from several people in in the Trump administration that they use the term you know land grab. That this this is how they saw what Netanyahu did on January twenty eighth, January twenty eighth, twenty twenty. That you know he, this is the only thing he cared about. He didn't care about the plan. He only cared about what he can get out of it, and he tried to to get it right away. So I think that that then. It really frustrated um, uh, uh, Trump, and he and and he it got him to think that um, uh, at the end of the day, Netanyahu wasn't really wasn't really interested at all in in uh, trying to get a, a peace deal in good faith, but that he only tried to get his you know narrow interest uh, uh, from from the plan. I think there was also the issue of of Iran that uh, Trump felt, especially around. Um, the killing of Soleimani. Trump was very frustrated with Netanyahu over this. My personal opinion is that his uh, frustration of Netanyahu was not warranted. I don't know how the Trump got this con- to this conclusion that Netanyahu didn't want anything to do with the killing of Soleimani. That's at least I did not get that sense, but Trump did. And so it was another... I think grievance that that he had, and I think that at the end of the day he felt that he did a lot of things during his presidency that, uh, and I think that he felt that Netanyahu didn't give him enough support before the elections. So when you put all those together, 
and again, Trump put all those together. So when he put all those together, I think that was his case that ended up with him using the F word towards Netanyahu. So let's talk about former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Like President Trump, I am a fan of Prime Minister Netanyahu. I thought he did a great job when he was the Prime Minister. Uh, I happen to like Prime Minister Bennett as well. Um, and I was proud to see Prime Minister Bennett go to the UAE. Remember, the Abraham Accords was built to transcend everybody who worked on it, inclu- including the leaders. And I've heard you, uh, I'll use the word defend Prime Minister Netanyahu here and there. In fact, earlier in this conversation, you were explaining how you can't say you know all bad about leaders and good. You know, everybody has their mixed bag of things, political leaders that, you know, certain things they do good, certain things uh, they're controversial or they upset people. Um, is it fair to say, as I believe, that Prime Minister Netanyahu, among many people, deserves credit for the Abraham Accords? Of course, the leaders in the Arab countries themselves. Um, without their courage and their boldness, this never would have happened. President Trump, the team, at the Trump administration. But I do think that Prime Minister Netanyahu was a key player, and I'm curious if you would agree with that. No, that's, that's definite. Okay, and in the at the beginning of the book, I speak about the three leaders: uh, Trump, Netanyahu, and Muhammad bin Zayed from the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. And I I want to go back to, to Trump for a second because you know before getting to Netanyahu, but in in the book I wrote that um that the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened if there was another president in in the White House who is not Donald Trump. Um, and the reason for it is a because of his you know policies in the region that you know like them or not the 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 result of their his policies was that the Gulf countries and Israel felt they have more trust in in the White House and it managed to get them closer together. And when decision point came, they felt you know more comfortable taking hard decisions because they trusted the president. Okay. That's for a second, because Trump was ready to put his his hand in his pocket and put tangible things on the table, not just ask people to do stuff. But he said, "Okay, I'm asking you to do this, but I'm willing, you know, to to make it worth your while." Which I think, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of times he was criticized about being transactional. In some of the cases, the criticism was warranted, but in this case. This is what made this this possible because you know you're asking people to take you know not an easy decision, and you know you need to show that you're also if you're part of it as the United States you need to also put things on the table and he did and I think that because of those things, it wouldn't have happened uh, without him. Netanyahu deserves huge credit because, uh, and, and I also write it in the book that this is some, one of the things that I was wrong about him. Um, because for he when he came into office in 2009, in his first meeting with Obama, uh, he said, you know, let's also go to the Arab world. Not just, you know, if we're trying to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we need the Arabs with us. So let's go to the Arab world. And Obama actually liked this idea and tried getting the Arabs to, to make normalization gestures towards Israel. I think it was too soon. They didn't feel confident enough at the time in 2009, but Netanyahu kept uh, pushing this idea of outside in, 
you know, going to the Arab world and trying to to get the Arab world closer to Israel, and from there trying to get the Palestinians to to engage. And for many years, I told this to Netanyahu. I don't know, twenty times. Uh, I told him every time, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. This will never happen. You're bluffing. You're, you know, you're selling everybody an illusion. No Arab country will normalize relations with Israel without at least some progress with the Palestinians. And apparently he was right and I was wrong. And I think that in, since 2009 in, and until 2020, he managed to build a quite wide-ranging diplomatic infrastructure uh of re- and and the and this web of relationships with uh arab countries that allowed the abram accords to you know to um to come out at that certain at that certain point okay when the abram accords happened they actually you know weren't netanyahu's first option okay they he wanted to uh to try and 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 go for for annexation of parts of the west bank but regardless of that I'm not sure that without this infrastructure that he built in those 10, 11 years, it would have been, uh, I think it would have been much harder to do the Abraham Accords without this infrastructure that Netanyahu, that Netanyahu built. And at the end of the day, again, it wasn't his first uh, uh, option. He wanted to go for annexation. He realized that, you know, other than him, nobody really supports that. So he decided to cut his losses and go for the Abraham Accords. And I think that at the end of the day, even Netanyahu was surprised about how successful the Abraham Accords were. I think, by the way, everybody was surprised. I think Trump was surprised. I think the Emiratis were surprised. I was surprised. I think every, everybody who had anything to do with this was surprised about how successful they are You know, a year later. It's, it's, quite, you know, it's quite amazing that um, usually in peace agreements, uh, a lot of it is, you know, 30,000 feet uh, or, you know, know, those agreements between leaders and and then people say, okay, what does it do to my life? And here with the Abraham Accords, it's very clear what it already did to people's lives. It's not like this uh, metaphoric thing of, you know, peace and love. No, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, trade went up five times. Uh, a quarter of a million of Israelis went to uh, uh, the UAE. That that this means that every tenth Israeli family was directly touched by the the Abraham Accords. It's amazing, um, and you know you can and you can look at every field. You know, COVID, um, higher education, culture, um, everything, and it. Just you know, just look at what the Abraham Accords did to Israeli Arabs. Okay, it you know all of a sudden it opened up for them huge opportunities that that they didn't have before, uh, and so so I think that um, this is really uh, Netanyahu deserves a lot of credit for it. Again, even though it wasn't his first priority. Without the infrastructure that he built, it would have been much more difficult to get there. Are you going to get kicked out of the leftists' union for saying that, Barack? No, I'm already. Uh, I'm. You know, this is like 
there's there are so many uh this is the the irony and i wrote about it in the book that the abraham accords their main lobby was supposed to be the israeli left okay uh or not by or not only the israeli left but the the let's say liberals in in america and in the us were supposed to be the biggest lobbyists for the or the biggest supporters of the abraham accords but because this was done by trump and netanyahu you know the you you, you heard so many people say oh yeah it's great but uh, you know, at the end of the day, there wasn't really a war. So why are they calling this peace? This was, uh, you know, this. I, I'm sure you heard this argument uh, uh, too. And by the way, I asked about this. Uh, the people at the foreign, Israeli foreign ministry who drafted the peace agreement, the peace treaty, and I asked them, so why did you call it the peace treaty if there was never a war? And they said, you know, we thought about it and we checked, and we checked all the cases in the past where. Uh, countries signed countries around the world signed peace agreements, and they found five or six cases that countries signed peace agreements without them being at, ever at war. For example, like 1952, Argentina and Japan signed a, a, a peace treaty. No Argentinian was killed by Japanese, and no Japanese were killed by Argentinians. But they signed the peace treaty because I think that that peace treaty doesn't only mean that you had a war and now you don't have a war. It, I think it means something about the kind of relationship you want to have with this country, okay? And not just, okay, we have diplomatic relations. No, we, I mean, when you want to have peace with somebody, I think it means something much deeper. And so, so I think that it's, you know, it, it is definitely a year later, I think we can definitely say that this, these are, you know, that this is, you know, peace that is, you know, happening every day and not just, you know this slogan, uh, this you know very uh, general or metaphorical slogan. It's it's things that are happening on the ground. Indeed, and so I do want to disagree with one thing here. I wasn't surprised at the magnitude, and I'll tell you why. I'm not going to say I knew that the Abraham Accords would be signed. Clearly, we worked on it for years, and nobody knew whether it would happen. Right? We built this architecture, but. Would there be the courage to do it? Would there be the different things that ultimately led this thing to click into place? That's a surprise, I do agree, and, and, and a great surprise for everybody. But spending three years walking through the region from the leadership to regular people, I will tell you that what struck me, to my surprise, was how warm and welcoming everybody was to the eventual idea that maybe someday it'll happen, and they're genuine about it. So as an observant Jew, as a strong Israel supporter, walking through these countries and understanding their real desire for, I'll call it peace, others say normalization, however you want to do it, but exactly what you describe, I felt that if it were to come to pass, it's going to be really meaningful. I think it's unfortunate that that didn't happen with Jordan and Egypt over the years, and I, I do think ultimately that will change. They're both different countries have other complicated issues and and all that, so it's not going to be nearly as simple. But um, I think that there's a genuine desire among these countries, and and I'll tell you that among some of the countries that I like to call those that have not yet signed the Abraham Accords, that feeling is there as well. So if and when that happens, I think the world is going to be very surprised how well Israel and its Arab neighbors can get along. 
And I'll, I'll close that part out by saying what's unfortunate to me is the Palestinians are missing a tremendous opportunity. Yes, they have major issues with Israel, and I, and I understand that. I disagree in many cases. I agree with some. But they could be such a, an important part of the glue that helps this succeed and that they could benefit from tremendously. And I hope that over time, as this unfolds, they realize that if an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians is not ready, they should still not, uh, they shouldn't miss this opportunity to better their own lives and take advantage of what is an amazing situation. No, definitely. And by the way, look at Egypt and Jordan since the Abraham Accords. Both countries warmed, started warming relations with Israel after the Abraham Accords because they realized that they don't want to be left uh, behind. You know, an Israeli prime minister visits Egypt in public for the first time in, in 10 years. Uh, um, you know, Jordan signs a deal with Israel and the UAE on, on building this solar farm uh, in Jordan for for uh, producing electricity to Israel, and Israel will build a desalination uh, a plant in in Israel to, for you know to to give water to to Jordan. This is you know it's the kind of things that ha haven't happened since we signed the 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 peace agreements with with Egypt and Jordan, and I think that both. You know, King Abdullah and and President Sisi, they they look at what's going on between Israel and the Gulf, they see the benefits, and they tell themselves, "Oh, we we want in on it," and and I think it's just going to to continue. Uh, and I think that the relations with Jordan and Egypt will uh, get better uh, more and more as Israel's relations with uh, Morocco, uh, uh, Bahrain, and and the UAE will get better, and maybe with more countries in the region. And I do think that it also helped the Palestinians so far, even though though the Palestinians would never admit it. Okay, unfortunately, but a there was no uh, annexation. You know, if I'm a Palestinian, I think that's quite a big thing for me. Okay, the Palestinians decided to say, "Oh, it's nothing. We don't care." Unfortunately, but the UAE, you know, I'll be blunt, the UAE saved their ass. Okay, really, big time. Uh, second, um, I think that during the last uh, operation in Gaza in May, the UAE, Morocco, and Bahrain, they spoke to the Israelis almost every day about you know not escalating uh about you know ending the operation and i think it made that it they had influence and i think this is exactly the you know it proves the point of why it's important for arab countries to have relations with israel because of you know this a it helps their own interest and b it gives them more opportunity to help the palestinians uh and unfortunately the palestinians decide until now, you know, not to take advantage of it, you know, that and it's, it's very unfortunate, but that's the reality. Um, and by the way, I think that it's a mistake that started in December 2017 with the decision to boycott the Trump administration after the decision about Jerusalem. Um, and I think that, and again, it is 
very clear why the decision about Jerusalem was, you know, very bad for the Palestinians. I can totally understand why they were angry, why they, you know, felt betrayed. Everything is, you know, everything I can understand. But the fact that they decided to then not speak to the to the Trump administration for three years, this was really, you know, such a huge mistake. And A, it got them nothing. Uh, and B, it made their situation worse. Uh, and I'm quite certain, uh, and by the way, Trump told me this in our interview, that he told Abbas in their last call on December 5th, 2017, he said, I'm going to give you something big next. You, you know, you're, you're next. And, um, and I think that if, if uh, Abbas, well, you know, you can be angry, you cannot talk to Trump for a month or two, that's, you know, that's reasonable. But if he came back to the table, I think he would have gotten quite, quite big, big things. And I even think that the, the, the plan would have looked a lot different. Uh, if the Palestinians uh, did engage. Well, I will say that we continued to work on the plan. I mean, I worked on that every, not, I don't want to say every day, even after they cut us off, but certainly every week refining it, including many things that benefited the Palestinians, because ultimately you're right the way you described it earlier. We didn't know if they'd come back. We thought it would be several months, maybe a little bit longer, but not permanently. But we did want to anchor something down for the record to eventually be picked up either by us at the end of the first term, when they came back, if they came back a second term, or a later administration. Let's talk about the Palestinians for a few minutes. I want to ask you a very specific question. I happen to agree with uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz that he met with President Abbas. Um, I didn't think anything meaningful would come of it. I think it was important. I know there were those who criticized him, but I don't think he met President Abbas to re-engage in a peace plan. He wanted to engage on the many things that the two sides have to talk about, which are important things to keep safety, security, other other things, right? So those who criticized him, I disagree with. But what's disappointing, though really not at all surprising to me, is after the meeting— you still had Hussein al-Sheikh, who I never met personally. I just you know, saw what he said publicly when I was in office at the White House. Say things like, you know, uh, there'll be an explosion, there'll be unrest. You know, I've heard the threats, although this time not. We're going to throw the keys back at Israel, that kind of thing. I think language like that, threats like that are so unhelpful, tiresome, you know, all that. Why do you think they still... Uh, especially after a positive meeting like that, that may lead to nothing other than more coordination and dialogue. Why do you think they still rely on those concepts of threats? Well, A, I think a lot of it is politics. You know, it's uh, a classic thing in Palestinian politics, unfortunately. Uh, by the way, unfortunately, it's also in Israeli politics and it manifests itself in a different way, obviously. But, you know, this kind of feeling every, every time when you when you do something, okay, you go and meet uh, Abbas or Abbas goes and meet Gantz. Each side feels that afterwards they need to say stuff to their own public to show that they didn't give up on anything. Instead of just saying, listen, we need to talk to each other because... We live in the same area and we need to live together. 
uh, and if we're not going to talk to each other, then most likely there is going to be an explosion. I mean, that's the, exactly the reason why we talk because we don't want to get to get an explosion. And um, and I think that again, this is you know Abbas and uh, Netanyahu were really um, you know it was a non-starter. And I and unfortunately neither of them. Uh, neither of them felt that they had an interest to try and change the situation. And both of them were, you know, wanted to, I think, to continue the status quo. I'm not even talking about a final status argument. I mean, I just mean that, like, the relationship, okay, the the relationship of of the day-to-day stuff uh, and what at least the government in Israel now does, and I think it's very positive, is to start at least, you know, okay, we can't get a peace agreement. We're not going to agree on Jerusalem and on the refugees and on the borders. No problem. But there are 10,000 other stuff that we can do together to make the situation a bit better or even a lot better. Um, You know, 4,000 Palestinians uh, um, got uh, their... um, their name in the population registry. Okay, it sounds like a small thing, okay, uh, but it's four thousand people that used to live in Gaza. They f- they left Gaza after Hamas t- t- took over, and they live in the West Bank, but they're not registered anywhere. And because they're not registered, they can't leave their city. And now four thousand of them can leave their city. It's it sounds like a small thing, but it's four thousand people that their lives dramatically changed because of the meeting between Abbas and Gantz because this was one of the decisions and 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 you remember Jason that you know when you were in office you also tried to do a lot of those things and unfortunately you know Netanyahu and Abbas couldn't work together to make to make that happen you know the Kalkilia project and you know you remember there a lot of other stuff that you know but you need the parties to talk to each other in order to to do confidence building measures but they weren't really willing to talk uh, and so at least i'm i'm really glad that right now they are talking and and they are working together and again it's not going to change uh the entire relationship there is still a lot of tension uh there is still uh mistrust there are still palestinian terror attacks there are still uh violence from extremist settlers against palestinians it's not that all of the problems have gone away Okay, but I think that slowly and gradually and steadily there is positive progress. So it's a great tee up to my last question. And we started the before we went, you know, before I hit record, we spoke a little bit about our children. And my view when I came into this job at the White House was I'm going to try to improve with I'm going to approach this with an eye to improve the lives of the, the next generation, the Israeli kids, the Palestinian kids, the neighbors of Israel's kids, we can't lose sight of that. And I remember when you and I were in Bahrain for the economic conference that Jared Kushner had created for the benefit of the Palestinians, correct me if I'm wrong, Barak, but you actually came with us to the synagogue in Manama. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I should even start beforehand. I remember how excited it was to get Israeli journalists into Bahrain. Like that was a big deal then. Then we went to the synagogue, we prayed. Uh, I think you might even have danced with us. Uh, I'm not sure at the end. And that seemed mind-blowing at the time. Yet now it seems 
oh, you know, look where we are today a couple of years later. Now it's really mind-blowing with all these new relationships. What's, as somebody who's been sort of following and, and writing about the conflict for so many years, and you're in a rough business, you know, uh, politics and this kind of conflict, what's your advice to young adults, teenagers about the future? What do you tell them when they see the messy world that we live in? Um, whether you're speaking to left, right, you know, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, secular, uh, religious, we all have our divisions, right? What's your advice to them about the future and uh, how they could build a better future? I, I think that my my main advice is that regardless of your you know politics or ideology or or, or thoughts, you have to educate yourself about the region about the conflict and unfortunately most of the discussions these days about those issues on on both sides uh are being uh done with no factual basis whatsoever you know people are talking about stuff without knowing anything and what i was happy to see for example with the book is that um, I got reactions from both like people on the left that said, "Well, you know what? We didn't we didn't know all that." Okay, now it you know it made us at least you know know more. And even people like hard you know I got a, a, a response from a guy hardcore settler. There's really he's like to the right of David Friedman, and and you know that's like. That that's not an easy thing to do, and he 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 wrote me how you know, and he doesn't agree with me on anything, okay, on anything, but he wrote me. Listen, it was really educating, and you know that's all. I, that's the most important part. You know, you don't have to agree, but at least you know educate yourself about what happened, because then at least when you have an argument. It will be based on 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 some facts and 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 some knowledge of 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 the conflict. The problem is that most of the people today, a most of the people are not interested in the conflict, and I think this is the most worrying thing because when people are not interested, nobody has an, an a motivation to try and solve it, and then we just we're just left stuck with it. Uh, and second that because they don't care they don't read about it they don't uh you know um they don't educate themselves about it so the, my my main advice to everybody who is even slightly interested is to you know educate yourself about the issue and and you know and don't own and by the way and while you're doing it try doing it not with you know self not only with self uh, uh self-serving uh, uh uh you know uh, um uh, opinions okay just you know try to educate yourself with how the other side sees things too okay you don't have to agree okay you really you don't have to agree but you have to know why they think how they think okay because if not then you know what's the basis for your arguments at all so i think this is my biggest advice you know you know, read about it, watch movies about it, uh, um, uh, um, uh, talk to people ab ab about it, educate yourself. 
I think that's great advice. Education. Um, don't just do it from a self-serving perspective, as you said. Dialogue and uh, and respect. By the way, I think that's sorely lacking in everybody's society these days. So, uh, Barack Ravid, thank you, thank you so much. Continued success with your book. Really appreciate you coming on. And um, thank you, Jason. And I'm looking forward to your book too. <laughs> thank you so much. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Barack Ravid. Again, Barack Ravid just wrote a book, Trump's Peace. He is the diplomatic correspondent for Walla in Israel and the Axios Middle East correspondent. He and I think very differently. For example, in the interview, you heard him use terminology like the West Bank. I think the proper word for that is, or the proper phrase for that is, Judea and Samaria. He uses words like settlers and settlements. I prefer to call them Israelis and cities, neighborhoods, and towns in Israel. Yet we were able to have a civil, respectful, interesting conversation, no matter how much we disagree. And the truth is, if you listen to the episode fully, you'll see there was a lot that we agreed on. I hope you found it interesting and informative. And if you did, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for getting us over 100,000 listens to the podcasts. Do keep spreading the word. Let's keep developing this community of respect and bridge building. I also want to thank Barack for saying he's looking forward to my book. I want to remind everybody I'm coming out with a book about the Abraham Accords, about Israel, about the Middle East generally. If you're fascinated by the Middle East and Israel, there's so much information out there. I wrote a book about it. Do go to Amazon and pre-order it. It's called In the Path of Abraham. If you search my name or In the Path of Abraham, you'll find it. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever your podcasts can be heard. Do continue to follow us. We have a great roster of guests coming up. And do follow me on Twitter, at GreenblattJD. I look forward to catching you next time. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.